Welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Erica. I'm Steve. And I'm Sarah. And you are with us at an exciting turning point in our ongoing series about different kinds of stuff you will find in the Bible, or to be fancy about it, biblical genres. And we've spent a good amount of time so far looking at the kinds of books and literature you would find in the Hebrew Scriptures of the Old Testament, including things like uh, poetry and prophets and histories and whatever you call the Torah, uh, laws and things like that. And now we're making the leap into what, Sarah? Gospel! Yay! Yay! We finally made it! <laughs> yeah, so we are finally in the New Testament, and specifically, the beginning of the New Testament, the Gospels, which is the four books of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where we find stories about the life and ministry and eventual death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Nice. So, maybe a place to start here, and, and this is maybe one of the things that people know, but it's worth saying out loud, I think. Um, even what the word gospel itself mm-hmm. means, um, and, and what exactly, why it is that we call these things that are kind of like biographies, why, the, why we call them by this particular word. So, can I take that one? Uh, go yeah. for it. Because I, I get to use a fun Greek word, because I know this one. <laughs> Something I remember from my Greek class. It is a fun Greek word. Euangelion uh, is... The word we now translate as gospel, which mm-hmm. literally means good news. Mm-hmm. Um, fun fact, it's not just related to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Right. I mean, when it was used in ancient Greek, I mean, it was good news. So, you know, the birth of a new Caesar, or Caesar had done something good. It was euangelion. This is good news. But for us as Christians, the good news is that the, about the life and death of Jesus Christ. And I, I'm glad you mentioned that in particular. That while this was a, a secular word broadly, that mm-hmm. like any, like whatever the good is, there's a sale on mattresses, or they might, <laughs> Shamrock shakes her back, or whatever you would use good mm-hmm. news euangelion for. But also, like you said specifically, the empire, and a reminder that all four of our gospels are written sort of in the shadow of the Roman mm-hmm. Empire there. The empire used this word in a kind of loaded way too. There's a, a Extra-biblical evidence. Um, One example that comes to mind is called the Priene Inscription, where you've got uh, an official edict from Caesar, and Caesar Augustus had the gall to announce to the empire, good news, we're celebrating the emperor's birthday, and the official word from the Roman Empire was, good news for all the world because a savior has been born, Caesar Mm -hmm who is, will be the one who unites the world in, you know, peace and whatever the empire is all about. So the word euangelion, good news, is used to announce the birth of the empire, of the, the emperor, and that the good news was that a savior was born for all people. So when later on, a particular gospel writer named Luke has the angels saying, good news for all the world, the savior has been born, nobody in the first century misses that is directly a shot right across the bow against the emperor to say, no, 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 it's not the way that Rome does things that will save the world, it's the way this homeless rabbi who dies on a cross saves the world. Um, and the Spoiler alert. Well, yeah, spoiler alert, whoops. But like, the, I, th- I think it's important how like the, there's that kind of edge to what's going mm-hmm. on in the Gospels, and that this wasn't like an accident or a, 
oh my goodness, I didn't mean for that word to be so loaded. Yeah, the gospel writers knew when they talk about what they had to say as the good news. They understood they were speaking a very different word than what the powers of the day, in particular what the empire thought good news was. Um, And so it's not that the gospels appear on the scene as the only good news in a world that had no good news. It was, here was a, a different picture of what good news is really all about. And when the empire thinks good news is, look, we may, we have more armies, or look, we've conquered another territory, the, the, minority report of what becomes the New Testament is say, there's good news we spoke of, but it ain't what Caesar thinks. Mm-hmm. So that the word itself means good news and maybe has that baggage. Uh, what are the things we should know about as a style, as a, as a genre? What, what are the Gospels like? Well, for the biggest part, they're a biography. Okay. You know, if you're going to put a, a <clears throat> genre to it, unlike the histories that, you know, we, we looked at the Old Testament to cover larger periods of time. I mean, mm-hmm. this is a biography... Uh, four books about one person in particular. Mm-hmm. I mean, it focuses in on Jesus. Yes, there, the disciples are in there, and his parents are in there, and all, all the people obviously he does ministry with are in there. But I mean, it's focused in on the life and ministry of Jesus. But unlike you know bio- biographies that we read today, where you know you have information about you know the person's childhood and mm-hmm. and things before they became famous. Mm-hmm. Um, we're kind of missing that chunk for the most part in the Gospels. So this, as I'm glad you mentioned this, this is a really interesting thing about how the Gospels work and how they're different from if you would buy a biography of some other famous person on the bookshelf, uh, if you're the sort of person who still has access to a bookstore around you rather than buying them online. But um, yet we're used to timeline of a person's life and you're getting about the same amount of time spent on infancy and childhood and formative years and all that and then yeah whatever made him famous that becomes a chapter or maybe even you'll find sometimes like when someone writes a memoir about their life they'll spend most of their time on their formative years because that's mm-hmm. the part that was out of the public eye and like everybody knows about what i did when i was you know yeah. what it famous um but the gospels the four gospels we have are almost the opposite yeah, and, they focus in on about three years of Jesus' life out of a life that we think was about 33 years long. And at most, really, like three years, because you figure in in John's Gospel, we get a mention of three different events at three different Passovers, and if you assume those are three different consecutive years, that's a three-year span, mm-hmm. you could theoretically fit the events that happen in Matthew, Luke, and Mark into one year, because they only tell one sort of mm-hmm. Passover narrative. There are some who are like, this could have been spread out over three years, but the Gospel writers themselves, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, don't give us any chronology other than he was an adult and he was about 30 years and then he died mm-hmm. <clears throat> and it could have been as short as a you know a nine month ministry I guess um, but yeah the, the other than John gives us the, the three year chronology but the other ones are even looser with time and to push it even further in at least Mark's gospel at least at least roughly looking at the math of it half of math half of Mark's gospel takes place in like the last week of Jesus' life. And John's gospel is somewhere in that neighborhood too because he has a lot of long extended discourses in the upper room on the last night of Jesus' life. So you've got not only people focused on the last couple of years of Jesus' life, but then super zooming in on the the, the events of the last week of Jesus' life and then also to varying degrees the teaching and actions and things of this Jesus of Nazareth. Well, and all the Gospels dedicate at least two to three chapters on the last days. Yeah. You know, <clears throat> Friday through Sunday of Jesus' mm-hmm, life. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's so very different than the biographies, like you said, that we read today of other famous folks. You know. And I would say, too, maybe another important thing that is worth saying out loud about how the Gospels work that's a little bit different from 
biographies today, or, or maybe we assume about biographies today. And that's I think the Gospels all have an agenda, and mm-hmm. they're aware of it. Like the, John, John the Gospel writer uh, comes out and says it at the end, I wrote this stuff down so that you'll come to believe in Jesus, and by believing in him have life yeah. in his name. And John the Gospel writer will even say at the end, there's a whole bunch of other stuff I could have told you about Jesus. I couldn't fit it in this book. And if I wrote down everything anybody had ever heard, it would fill all the libraries in all the world. Mm-hmm. Not to exaggerate at all, John. But um, he says, but I wrote this down for a particular mm-hmm. reason. And the other gospel writers, maybe you could say that they would put it in slightly different words, but they all bring an agenda. It's not just, I'm here to tell stories about Jesus. That's a piece of it. But they're convinced that they they want to evangelize us, to mm-hmm. use that word we've kind of made. And they want to teach us to be people who are followers after this Jesus, who see the world through the Jesus lens of mm-hmm. life, who understand the reign of God in light of how Jesus defines it, um, and uh, who who approach the world differently because of who this Jesus of Nazareth is. In a way different than if I pick up a biography about um, George Washington, an author will probably have some positive things and some negative things to say, mm-hmm. and say, here's a place where he did good, here's a place where he missed it, you know. Um, and the gospel writers don't have moments where they're like, oh, Jesus totally blew it here. There might be things that challenge us, but the gospel yeah. narrators are like, here's Jesus. He's, he's the son of God. Deal with it in a way that's different than other biographies. Yeah, I think it's important to remember that they were all <coughs> writing to different communities that's at great. different uh-huh. times, and uh-huh. they had different purposes for writing. Yeah. And I'm, I'm always really, really skeptical and squeamish when people try to mesh all yeah. four Gospels or just three Gospels if they want to go, oh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar. Let's try to combine them. Because mm-hmm. they don't usually do that well They because it's, you know, Matthew is writing to this group and mm-hmm. Mark is writing to this mm-hmm. group and it's not the same group of people. So when you try to mesh them together... It, it often just doesn't work out. Yeah. And, I mean, that that's important. We, we can't be certain about exactly who the audiences were that these refers written for. And maybe you could say, were the original gospel writers, did they think eventually the stories they were telling would be circulated far and wide? Maybe, but... Y- before anything got written down, everybody was telling oral stories about Jesus because, you know, local house churches, it would be a bunch of new believers and whoever the local apostle was who was in that town telling stories about when they hung out with Jesus. Those were floating around for sure, but by the time the the actual written gospel start getting written down, they are sort of intended for a kind of community. And we don't have title pages to know, you know, there's no inscription, Dear First Church of Corinth, I'm writing this for you. But we can do some good guessing about what kinds of things seem to be um, uh, emphasized or what things seem to be less important about maybe what's going on in the mind of the writer and the audience as well. Yeah, for example, I believe it's Luke who was written assume was probably for a Jewish uh, community, right? Is it Luke? Because Matthew, definitely. Yeah. All right, Matthew, that's who I was thinking of. Like, one of them who's all constantly just yeah. referring back to the Old Testament mm-hmm. as if you have grounding in those scriptures and in those traditions and in that history. And then other, uh, another one seems to be much more towards a Gentile community because they don't assume mm-hmm. that you know anything. Right, and that's a good way of... of, of uh, helping ex- explore how do we how would we tell what a book was written for who a book was written for if an author uh, says things and doesn't explain them the author probably assumes the audience doesn't need to explain for them but if you have an author saying let me explain to you why the Pharisees were all obsessed about washing their pots and things like that it's a sign oh 
this might be read by people who don't know about what the Pharisees do and why they wash their pots in their hands uh, and why Jesus would have had a squabble with them or something like that. Or um, there are a couple of places... Uh, I know Mark has preserved them for sure. You can get a couple places, and maybe in John too, where you get actual Aramaic words in the original. And sometimes our English translations will will preserve it too. So there's this story where Jesus raises a little girl who had died and raised her back to life. And Mark's got in there, Jesus said the words Talitha Kumi, which is Aramaic for little girl get up. Um, And it's it's almost like he's holding on to this fragment like somebody actually told him the story firsthand and they actually spoke it in Aramaic to him but he's now writing to an audience that doesn't all speak Aramaic so clearly he's maybe not right in Palestine but in somewhere else in the empire um, to people who aren't fluent in Aramaic um, so that's that's important these are written to different audiences and like you say Matthew is super interested in writing to a, uh, a Jewish audience and will say things like this happened to fulfill what the prophet wrote or um, he will assume things that we know about how Judaism in the first century second temple era does things um, and other writers aren't as interested in making those connections but have other fish to fry you could say um, another thing that maybe is worth saying out loud while we don't have the original copies of any of the originals on us, we also are guessing or tradition is what gives us the names of the authors of these books. Mm-hmm. We don't have any uh, original signed autographs um, from Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. <clears throat> there are early, like, second century traditions that ascribe one book to somebody or so-and-so. So it's not like these are made up on a full, you know, whole cloth last week. But what we have is at best second-hand tradition saying this this uh, gospel is associated with Matthew or this one with Mark or Luke or uh, John. Um, and that, I think, is significant on a, on a couple of levels. Yeah, I think it's uh, pretty safe to say that the authors of these gospels are at least one person removed from Jesus. Yeah. Right? That they weren't the actual disciples following Jesus and, uh, you know, keeping a journal and going, ooh, in 50 or so years when I'm old, I'm going to turn this into a gospel. <laughs> right. No, um, probably the authors were people who took these oral traditions and then mm-hmm. wrote them down later. With the exception of, oh, man, I should have looked this up earlier. There is one gospel where suddenly at the end of the gospel, it's like the author was there. Well, you'll get like... Or is that in Acts? Now it, I'm second-guessing myself. In, in Acts... Uh, which is sort of like the sequel, second volume of oh, Luke, okay, you get we passages where all of a sudden, mm-hmm. and really like abruptly, like it'll be third person, he did this, they did that, Paul went there, and then all of a sudden we went there mm-hmm. that suggests that the author was there for this part of the journey. But it's not set off in your, in your even in your English Bible with like a, a header saying, and now here's the part where Luke's there. It just sort of like mm-hmm. flows right right through it. And then you'll get in John's Gospel this weird figure, sometimes called the Beloved Disciple, who doesn't get named or mentioned for like the first 13 chapters, and then all of a sudden, Jesus is doing this, and the Beloved Disciple, or the disciple whom Jesus loved, who's sitting right there, will, you know, Jesus will say something to, and then at the end of John's Gospel, in those like final epilogue sort of moments, it'll be like, this disciple, the, the guy who Jesus loved, is the one who's writing this. And again, you're not sure if... If that's uh, these are the recollections of who that beloved disciple was, and now we've finally written them all down, or is this a later community that's taken the preserved oral traditions that the beloved disciple have? That good guess. I, I don't know, um, but yeah, none of none of them have like first person. I was there and I saw it. Some of them, you got some tradition putting them with one or a different early church figure, and even even at the most um, most 
accepting or optimistic or hopeful of these possible readings. Matthew and Luke, even if a guy, even if Mark from the Bible and Luke wrote them, neither of those were Jesus' apostles. These are people who get later secondary mentions. And in fact, I think there's a good reason to say those are probably your your strongest cases for why it's worth believing that Mark is the guy who behind Mark's gospel. Because if you were going to invent it, you wouldn't pick John Mark, who's this like third-tier character who doesn't come off well in the book of Acts because he bails out halfway <laughs> through in his mission, it, it seems plausible to say that guy might have come around and eventually written down uh, a gospel mm-hmm. and we'd remember that and we'd give him credit for that. If you were going to make it up, if you were going to make up a gospel and you wanted to give it credibility, you'd pick the most you know credible sounding, this is, you know, uh, this is the gospel that Peter himself wrote. And it's worth noting, there are floating out there mm-hmm. other apocryphal gospels, books that are uh, stories about Jesus, sometimes that are ascribed to no less than, than Peter or Mary Magdalene or Mary the mother of Jesus. Um, and the early church, when they got around to saying what are going to be our authoritative scriptures, ended up saying, this says it's from Peter, but I don't think it's really from Peter. <laughs> um, and that the early church did have some kind of sense of, we're not just attaching anything Thing that's a story about Jesus or claims to be written by. So it, they, they should give us some confidence, at least, that there were early reasons from the early church about why they settled on these stories. And they didn't, for example, accept the Gospel of Peter where there's a talking cross, <laughs> um, which is an interesting story, but strains credulity. <laughs> <clears throat> So, okay, we've got four Gospels. They are written by four different people, different authors. Um, and yet there are clearly some commonalities across uh-huh. all four of them. Are there things that emerge to you? We kind of talked about they all have a, a kind of similar timeline. Are there other things that seem important to lift up that are common across them all? I, I think I would like to lift up that there are three that are very, very similar. Yeah. And they are called the Synoptic Gospels, okay. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And that is because they seem to have shared some sources. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Steve, I think you had mentioned previously oral tradition. Yeah. Like there were definitely stories that they shared. Um, as far as biblical scholars can tell, Mark seems to be the earliest gospel written down and circulated. And Matthew and Luke both seem to have had Mark as a common source. Mm-hmm. Like they had Mark already <coughs> when they wrote their stories because they have, like, I think Matthew uses, I want to say, like, 80% of Mark. Like, they use, like, a yeah. lot of the stories in Mark is retold in Matthew. And often... And Luke often word for word. I mean, so, like, yeah. this is not just like, oh, they both have the story of the feeding of the 5,000, but it's all, all the way down to the phrasing is the same that mm-hmm. feels a little bit like, wow, this sure seems like someone had a copy of this in front of them. And again, that 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 isn't to say, like, we get fussy about things like plagiarism in our day. Like, if you borrowed from somebody else, oh, it, it, it's somehow bad or wrong. Um, and in the ancient world, that's not they're, they're not interested in getting credit or selling a bestseller. They're like, I need to tell you the stories of Jesus. Mark has done half the work for me already by giving me a narrative. Great. I'm going to add these other stories I have, and I can use Mark where I've got it. Um, so if we get fussy about what are we su- suggesting, that Matthew or Luke had copies of Mark's gospel in front of them, that, that wouldn't have bothered anybody in the first century. They would have said, good, half the work's done for me, now let me add the rest of the stories I need to add. And it's maybe worth noting, because uh, uh, some folks may ask, wh- why do we think, what are reasons we think uh, Matthew and Luke have copies of Mark in front of them? Not only do they have sometimes down to the word in the original Greek, word for word, uh, exactly the same language, which seems hard to imagine three people coming up with the exact same sentence to tell the same story. But also in chronology, there are 
Sometimes where Matthew will disagree with Mark or Mark will disagree with Luke, but those are rare, but almost never do Matthew and Luke agree on a chronology that's different from from Mark. I mean, which which is to say, it sure seems like Mark is the common thread that both of the other two have. And if they change something, they've got a different story that they're changing, not that Mark came along and said, I'm going to shrink down what these other people wrote. That's the other piece, is that Mark is considerably shorter than Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel. And it seems much more likely that you've got a shorter gospel and other people came along and said, hey, I've got these other stories I want to tell, let me also add them. Then Mark came along and said, I don't want any of these beatitudes, let me pare those down, Uh, let me give something that is much shorter. And Mark has a way sometimes of being like cut to the chase kind of, Mm -hmm. um, immediately this happened, immediately that happened, immediately that happened. And you can imagine somebody saying, let's take out some time and actually hear what Jesus had to teach because Mark's gospel doesn't have nearly as much teaching content of Jesus uh, as Matthew and Luke do. But Mark being so short and being most likely, excuse me, the first gospel makes sense because, I mean, he's just trying to get this information out there as quickly and as as easily as possible Mm -hmm. to the churches where once the churches, once you kind of have that first generation or maybe like a half a generation, yeah. you know, right after the apostles and everybody kind of has an idea of the story, then you get more expansive on the story with Matthew and Luke. And then John is a whole different story because John is more theology-based. Like yeah. He, he focuses more on like the theology of what Jesus did. While there's still the history and the biography mm-hmm. in there, you know, he's like, okay, you've heard the story of Jesus. This has been around for, you know, mm-hmm. 60 years or so. This is what it means, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. and so then you get that whole kind of, and that's why John seems so different than the other three because he's focused more on, okay, how do we apply these yeah. teachings of Jesus? Yeah, yeah, and w- without getting too much into their heads uh, and psychologizing, it, I think that's a good way of describing it. That it seems like by the time John gets around to writing, the need is not we need to have a record of different miracles Jesus did, mm-hmm. but more like. Let me spend some time thinking or trying to unpack what does it mean that Jesus came into the world. So even the tone, of the kinds of ways that Jesus speaks in John's gospel mm-hmm. feels different. Where in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll get often these short, pithy, we call them parables. And sometimes they are barely even stories. They're like vignettes. You know, the kingdom of God is like yeast that somebody made dough with. It's not a very riveting story, but oh, I get the image about what that is. Whereas in John's gospel, you'll get these long discourses. Sometimes it's very clear that Jesus is speaking. Sometimes it's it's almost hard to tell as the narrator just sort of taken over and like is explaining what's like uh, in the famous conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus in uh, John chapter three. The, the verse everybody brings to football games: the John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It's hard to tell for certain. Have we stopped quoting Jesus and this is now the narrator t- explaining something or is this still part of Jesus' discourse mm-hmm. about himself? Um, there aren't quote marks in the original and I've seen Bibles that take that in different directions. Some who end the quote of Jesus earlier on and now like this is the narrator talking mm-hmm. and others who are like, nope, Jesus is saying this about himself. But in John's gospel, they kind of flow one into the other. Mm-hmm. The voice of the narrator is the voice of Jesus. Um, even to the point where in John's gospel, in the high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus prays, is praying to God, and then describes himself in the third person. You know, he, he, There's a point in the prayer where he goes, uh, Father, um, 
I'm asking you to protect all those who believe in me and all those who will come to believe in the one whom you sent, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it feels a little bit like, wait a second, Jesus referred to himself in the third person with the definite article, the, really? Um, and it, 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 this is how John tells the story. Yeah. And accepting it is like, yep, this is how he tells the story. That's okay. Um, and that John has something to tell us um, in a way that, yeah, is going to be different from the way Matthew, Mark, and Luke do it. Um. To me, this feels a little bit like the different ways... Forgive me for indulging in a moment of nerdery. But um, I watched uh, all of the Harry Potter movies as they came out. Mm -hmm. And I've also read all the Harry Potter novels. And so I knew the source material before the movies came out. And you could tell when a different director was in charge of the movies. Like, there would be different flares. Sometimes there would be, you know, uh, innocent and childlike and sort of like this wonderful world of magic, and sometimes they get downright dark. Sometimes that's because the novels do that, but some directors will bring that out, and others make this more like a Home Alone with Wizards. The first two were directed by the same director as the first, as the Home Alone movie, and you can kind of tell, yeah, this is Chris Columbus. Um, and other ones, yep, that feels like a David Yates movie. Um, and I think the Gospels, in a similar way, have a way of... They follow the, the flow of the content they're teaching. So they're all, they're all like following the same narrative arc of Jesus. But they bring something, and, and the way they tell the story is important. That's, that's a part of what their message is. That, and so the significance of how John tells the story, it's okay that he tells things differently than Matthew, Mark, and Luke do. And like you said earlier, Sarah, rather than forcing them all to fit and be kind of homogenous and be like you know, all generic, there's something valuable in letting each one have their own voice. Maybe that's a place to <clears throat> to stop off too for a minute. Are there other distinctives of each of the Gospels that seem important or that you want to highlight? Are there things in Matthew or Mark or Luke or John that um, are either tickle you or delight you or surprise you or things that would be helpful for folks to remember? We already kind of highlighted that Matthew is the one who's most interested in how does this connect with the Hebrew scriptures mm-hmm. or the prophets uh, and is well attuned to a Jewish Christian audience and maybe the wider Jewish audience. Do we want to tackle, even if it's briefly, the, the genealogies that we find in Matthew and Luke and the differences <clears throat> between them? Because that sometimes becomes a yeah. you know, a, a catching point for a lot of folks. Because like, oh, I find genealogy so boring. But, but. <laughs> here, here, I think that the, the genealogies are there for a reason. Mm-hmm. They play into the author's agenda. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you can definitely see that, for example, in Matthew, where... The genealogy of Jesus goes all the way back to, to Abraham, Abraham. Mm-hmm. and that's like oh, that's a lot. But it's but he does that for a reason mm-hmm. because he wants to point out that Jesus is part of God's chosen people. And you could you could ratchet that up even further. There are some scholars who say not only does Matt, is Matthew making a point by having us go back to Abraham. Matthew's broken up his genealogy into three segments of 14. Mm -hmm. The first that goes from Abraham to David, then David to the exile, and exile to Jesus. And there are scholars who are like, not only are those like important milestones in Israel's history, he definitely wants to connect Jesus as the descendant of David, you know, because there's that promised king, the Messiah, who's coming Mm -hmm. from David's line. Mm -hmm. And also, there are scholars who will suggest that the number 14 is significant because it's it's the value of David's name. Mm -hmm. That uh, if in Hebrew numerology, letters are also their numerals. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the name David is worth 14. Right? We, without getting crazy into Kabbalah stuff, like that sort of standard, like David is like, 14 is the number for David. And that it, that Matthew is the gospel writer, maybe trying to say like, like to hammer this home, like 
this is the mm-hmm. Davidic Messiah, and it, and it's significant that Matthew knows he's omitting generations. There are other, if you compare what Matthew has compared to uh, what the actual genealogies that you can find in like Ezra, Nehemiah, and back in Leviticus. Matthew has omitted some. Matthew seems to be aware of this. He doesn't think he's lying. He's just trying to make a point like, I'm, I'm, I'm doing some skipping. This is intentional, but he's doing it in order to make a suggestion that Jesus stands in the line of the Davidic family and that Jesus is the Davidic Messiah we're waiting for. But Luke does something really different with his genealogy. Even though they are both lists of names, he goes all the way back to Adam. Mm-hmm. Um, so his genealogy goes further back and his has this delightful sort of play on words at the end where um, Matthew goes forward in time from Abraham working up to Jesus. Luke goes backwards. So he's got, you know, Jesus was the son of so-and-so, who was the son of so-and-so, mm-hmm. so that when you get to Adam, it goes, who was the son of Adam, son of okay. God, which makes for this sort of clever double entendre, right? Mm-hmm. That Jesus is the son of Adam, and Adam was the creation of God, the son of God, but Jesus is. And Luke seems to be much more interested in conveying to a non-Jewish world or a Gentile world why Jesus matters, that he is really the savior for all the world and not um, Caesar. Um, And that sense of this is a universal thing, Luke is all about that. Are there other things you want to highlight uh, in the genealogies in particular? I think we talked before about how Matthew highlights four women who Mm -hmm. are like exceptional and whose stories of motherhood um, break the the cookie cutter mold of how family is supposed to work. And yet that seems to be Matthew is highlighting Mm -hmm. rather than burying that and be like, oh, this would be embarrassing. He's like, yep, this is this is something you need to know. Jesus has these four, in several cases, Gentile women, in all cases, deviating from the usual way that children are born in families' stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's significant for, um, for Matthew. I wanted to add one of my favorite things about Mark's gospel that used to really, really trouble me. Um, Mark is weird in a number of ways. <laughs> Mark is weird. And like I said, sometimes Mark runs super fast through a story and he will o- often use the word that gets translated immediately. So like, it feels like they were just sprinting through the last years of Jesus' life. And at the same time, Mark will sometimes include the, the funniest weird details. In, the, in Mark's telling of the, um, of the feeding of the 5,000, uh, Mark says, and Jesus made them sit down on the green grass. And Matthew, when he gets around to tell, he, cut, he cuts out the color green because he assumes you know the color of grass but to me it's funny that like what details get held on to and what mm-hmm. don't or Mark holds on to the Aramaic Talitha Kumi when Jesus raises the little girl and the others are just like he resuscitated her do you need to know the magic words They, you know. It, mm-hmm. but Mark holds on to those um, and the thing that is super weird to me but I have now come to love is Mark's gospel starts weird because it starts like mid-sentence with the beginning of, it's not even a complete sentence, really. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He sort of tells us from the beginning, I'm telling you right now who Jesus is. And the whole rest of the gospel mm-hmm. is watching other people either get it or not get it who Jesus is. And what, reading through the whole gospel of Mark, it's surprising who recognizes who Jesus is. So the religious people and the respectable people, they're all completely clueless. But demons know who Jesus is. And uh, blind people and sick people, uh, and eventually a centurion at the cross recognizes who Jesus is. But there's whole, this, this whole inversion of who gets it, who Jesus is. And then Jesus suffers on the cross and dies and is buried. And when you get to Mark's version of the resurrection story, our earliest manuscripts have a cliffhanger ending. Mm-hmm. Um, the One of the things to, to, to notice, and I think this is important to say out loud, is the 
the Gospel of Mark, your, your Bible will probably have footnotes saying there are multiple endings and different manuscripts that we have, because again, we don't have the original copy to know, have different endings on them. And the, I think the best scholarship is that the earliest version is the short one, and it makes more sense that somebody else came along and said, I don't like that ending, let me add something, rather than, this is a perfect satis- perfectly satisfying ending, let me wreck it. Um, but the shortest ending, and they're, uh, most likely the original ending of the earliest copy we have, is that the women go to the tomb and the stone is rolled away Mm -hmm. and the angels are there and saying, Jesus isn't here, he's alive, he's risen. Go tell the other disciples he's alive. He'll meet them in Galilee. And they leave from the tomb. And the last word then is, and they didn't tell anybody for they were afraid. (laughs) And to me, either you're forced to say that's a totally stupid way to end the gospel or Mark is a ninja and is playing a joke on us. And and the more I think about it, the more I think this is a gospel that intentionally ends on a rhetorical joke. And what I mean by that is, obviously somebody told, right? That, like, who told these women? Or who who told Mark? Because he's he's not one of the women at the tomb. And how does does he come to hear the story? He's not even one of the first disciples. I think this is Mark deliberately saying, and nobody told anyone because they were so afraid. Like, he he just couldn't write the spit take at the end. But that Mark's gospel ends with this, obviously somebody told, but who are you going to be in this story? That, like, the story only gets told. The the story only continues on if somebody tells. And what possible thing, what's the one possible thing that could have changed these women's story? They left the tomb afraid because they had just seen a talking angel who said that the dead rabbi they had come to visit wasn't there anymore. What possible thing could keep them from... um, break them out of that fear. They had to have run into the living Jesus. Um, I can remember a preacher a long time ago said the point of the way Mark ends his gospel is to say Jesus is alive and loose in the world now. And that by not giving us a story where Jesus shows up there, it means he's anywhere and everywhere and you can't contain him. And I, I, I think something like that is what's going on for Mark. Although you'll also find people who say, um, nope, I think he just the last page got cut off. And there are people who've written their doctoral dissertations on, nope, there's a missing ending and we just don't have it. But I think Mark's a, a Jedi master and he intends he intentionally ends the story in this baffling way. Um, I, but I, that they may be me reaching. But that is one of the reasons I love Mark's gospel. He ends with a joke. And it happens to be the shortest. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so there's that. Um, are there other, any other things that we think would be helpful for folks to know about the Gospels? Uh, I think it's probably important to note that one of the Gospels has a sequel. <gasps> it sure does. Yeah, the Gospel of Luke is uh, the first book of a two-book series that the author of Luke wrote, the second being the Acts of the Apostles. And I think you may have mentioned this earlier in an episode on genre, that there are there are some indications that biblical books have kind of the length they do because of the, the physical limits of how long a scroll could be. Yes. And there's some, I think, solid conjecture that the reason we've got Luke as a two-volume work isn't because Luke said, let me write about Jesus, oh, I'm going to follow that up with another book. But this was he saw this as one story, but came against the limits of... Okay. It's the same story. Okay. Or maybe that it is the same story, but it's meant to be told... In two parts. In two parts. Okay. Because if you look at the general flow... Like, if you were to... If you were plotting out a novel, mm-hmm. and you wrote an outline, you'd have an outline. <laughs> uh-huh. So if you had the outline of the Gospel of Luke and Acts of the Apostles, the outlines mirror oh, yes. each other. Yes. In a very, very cool way. 
And so I think in that way, he was very intentional about it being two stories, yeah. two different stories. Mm-hmm. Like, it is the same story, but it is intentionally that they are two books. I guess what I mean to say is that Mark, I think Luke assumes that people who are going to read the story of Jesus that we call the Gospel of Luke are also going to read mm-hmm. the story that we call Acts, mm-hmm. and that there are deliberate setups in what we call the Gospel of Luke that have their payoff mm-hmm. in the book of Acts, that um, Luke assumes you have read the Gospel before you get to Acts. and that, that, So that, that two-part structure means... It, it would be weird to just read the book of Acts without knowing the story of Jesus. Yes. And similarly, that Luke thinks the story of Jesus isn't done once he ascends into heaven, mm-hmm. but in fact the story continues on. Well, in both the Gospel and the book of Acts, you know, Luke begins by saying, you know, I've written this to this guy named Theophilus. Mm-hmm. Like, so clearly he's writing to a specific person in, in an Acts, um, the opening verses in the first book, right. Theophilus. Like, so clearly I think I'm more with Sarah. Like he intended this to be something separate, but also sure, just sure, like sure. any good series sure. of books. Like, okay, we stopped here, but the story continues. Right, right. And so this is that continuation. This is what that looks yeah. like. Well, and that, that's more what I mean. I get. I, yeah. I guess what I mean to say when I say I think Luke sees it as one story is in this era, and maybe I'm just so concerned about movies and the way movies are made with sequels mm-hmm. these days but like so often we'll be like somebody makes a movie and then it makes a bajillion dollars and like five years later like well let's make yeah, more yeah. money let's make but mm-hmm. I think from the beginning Luke sees he's oh, yeah. going to tell a story that is not only sort of the death and resurrection of Jesus but then is about the story that he participated in presumably when he gets to the wee passages mm-hmm. uh, in what we call the book of Acts um, and the, yeah there's deliberate plotting in the in the book we call Acts that starts with Jesus gives a sort of mission statement to his disciples in the opening scene, mm-hmm. you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth, and then the rest of the plot of the book of mm-hmm. Acts watches the people of, the followers of Jesus radiate out from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Yeah, I would say Luke is a very intentional writer, mm-hmm. and like he definitely had plotted out, like here was his outline and then he mm-hmm. just filled in, filled it in and yeah. wrote books. Um, that's not always the case. Some of the biblical writers definitely seem to just be winging it, and then every once in a while they have to like backtrack. Oh yeah, I forgot to mention. <laughs> right, right. Uh, a week before this, this happened, and it was at this place, and that was relevant to the story. Now, and I'm sorry, I forgot to tell you. And um, like in, in John's gospel, you get the scene where like there's a uh, the, the reference to Mary and Martha, and it'll be like, yeah, Mary's the one who anointed Jesus with her tears, and you don't get that story for the next chapter. Exactly. Yeah. And like yeah. you, you definitely get the feel that these stories circulated orally first, and that here's somebody who and, and their audience knew all these stories, and it's like, yeah, you know, Mary and Martha, Mary's the one, you know, the anointing Jesus. Part. Oh, we haven't told that story yet. <laughs> um, and again, there's something so beautifully, I think, human about that. Mm-hmm. That like there is this. These are the the lived family stories of people who had known and loved Jesus and his initial group of followers, and and at some point they were like man, they're starting to put some of us in jail or kill us. We should write these down. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how we ended up with the Gospels, rather than on Easter Monday, the disciples said, let's start writing a bestseller. Mm-hmm. So, we got ourselves a bonus sequel in, in Acts. Um, maybe we've given folks enough to at least wade into the Gospels a little bit more or with a, another eye for what to look for. And so we'll say next time, uh, catch up with us more on Crazy Faith Talk. Thanks. Plan. Bye, everybody. Bye. See y'all.